0: I'm going to break up your time and ask you to start heading back to your seats. As you're getting there, as you're finding your chair, go ahead and grab your Bibles. Psalm 8 is where we are going to be this morning. It's where you want to be this morning to follow along. Um, uh, Psalm 8, as, as we just continue to work our way through the first book of Psalms. Uh, and the way that the, the, the Psalter, as it's called, is comprised, uh, there's 150 Psalms. And they're broken down into five different books. And, and it's just a way that uh, those that were, were around when the, the Psalms were all collected and compiled, uh, just began to just break them down and, and designate them. And book one of the Psalms um, is Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. And we are just taking and looking at selected psalms uh, throughout this summer from that first book. And so we're not going to get any higher than 41. To be quite honest, I don't think we get any higher than 33. Um, and, and we're just kind of jumping along and plotting forward. And, and really these psalms don't connect in a high degree from one week to another with each other. Um, and so there's not necessarily a, a rallying theme that all of these psalms bring us to. Quite frankly, next week we're going to talk about what David has to say in Psalm 13 when he is he is in in probably what had or probably what would be diagnosed today, clinical depression, and and, and things are rough, and it's a dark day in his life, and he begins to think through and, and write poetry about what it, what to do. And and so um, thinking through Psalm 13 and and, and trusting God in the darkest of nights is, is where we'll go next week. And Psalm 8 pictures for us David's praise for the majesty of the Lord. And he is going to set his praise for God on the backdrop of God's work in his life. And God's work in creating and God's work then in and through him as an as a, as a individual and as a man responsible to, to guard and to keep what God had created. And so we're going to look this morning at some, some specific aspects of God's creation. We're going to look at some specific aspects of what God has created, what he spoke into being. And I just want to recognize on the, on the front side of this that Psalm 8 will not make sense to you as David intends... If you have an understanding of the world's formation that it does not align with and correspond with Genesis 1. So in Genesis 1 we have in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. And from verse 2 all the way through chapter 2 you have the very detailed account of how God did that. And on day 2 God spoke and there was. And on day 3 God spoke and there was. Was if you if you don't believe what Genesis one and two say, Psalm eight is going to fall short for you. You're not going to be moved in the way that David intends you to be moved in the way that he was moved as he looked at the heavens and found found himself wondering, Holy smokes, I am so completely insignificant, and God is so majestic. Now, to that point, I, I just also want to say this, that if you, if you struggle with how to reconcile all of those questions about what Genesis 1 and 2 does say, and about what science has been saying, you're in good company. You're in good company. And there are individuals that are wrestling through those questions, and, I, and, and we're not going to look at the details that, that I think give, give really good evidence to support intelligent design or biblical creationism. But I will just say this, there there are incredibly brilliant scientists and astrophysicists, physicists and mathematicians that are studying these things and finding that what Genesis 1 and 2 says corresponds a whole lot more closely with what science is revealing than what a the theory of evolution says. We don't have time this morning to get into all of that and for some of you that just may that may kind of leave you a little dissatisfied because you're why well, I, I read about this and billions and what about that it, we, we just don't have the opportunity to get into that this morning but the voices of evolution are not the only voices in the scientific community. They perhaps may be the loudest voices that we hear but they are not the only ones. And so if, if you find yourself just kind of wondering, how does science and the Bible reconcile in regards to these things? There's some resources that, that you could walk away with this morning that our church library has, that my own personal library has, that I'd be more than willing to loan to you that may begin to help you understand and, and figure out how those things reconcile. Some of those written by my science professor at Grace College, who is president of a creation research institution. Brilliant man. I, I actually had his grandkids in my youth group. And, and just a, just an awesome man. And and so if you would like to take any of those resources home, come find me. We'll get you those. Because those are not questions that we shouldn't ask. We should ask those questions. And we should never be afraid as believers of good, hard questions. And I do believe there are good answers for those questions. We have to dig a little bit. We're not going to find them on the news network this evening. we got to dig a little bit, but I think they're there. So Psalm 8 going to walk us through that. So let's go to Psalm 8. Let's read these nine verses. And then let's pray. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, God, we come before you now as we have just read your word, we've, we've read what it was that you inspired your servant David to write, as he praises your majesty, as he marvels at your majesty, as he thinks about who you are in relationship to everything else that he is able to observe, observe. and it's just really by and large just undone when considering who you are. God, I, I pray that you would bring us to that point this morning. That you would bring us to this place of smallness this morning. That we, in considering what it is that you've made, and considering how it is that you operate, that you would that you would just kind of deflate our understanding and our, our 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 boastfulness of who we are, and that you would magnify yourself all the more. God, I pray that you would lead us to conclude and to celebrate and to praise. Your majesty, as David here does and directs us to do. And so, God, we pray and I pray that you would just come and meet with us in a special way this morning. And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Psalm 8 breaks down into, into really three different parts. And, and David is going to be praising the majesty of the Lord for his protection and provision. And not just that he protects and provides, but the very way that he protects and provides. And secondly, David's going to praise the majesty of the Lord for his mindfulness and care of man. And and this is going to be especially seen in regards or distinction with what David's able to observe in the universe. And thirdly, David's going to praise the majesty of the Lord for his work in and through man. And so David begins in verse 1, and verse 1 is almost identical to verse 9. Those really comprise and compose the bookends of this psalm. But David begins there in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing that we need to just stand back and recognize as we look at what David writes is that the words for Lord that he uses in verse 1, are two different words, and perhaps your Bible will give indication to this. More than likely, the first word of Lord, the second word in this psalm, is in all capitals. Now, they're tiny capitals, but they're in all capitals. The second word for Lord, the L is capital, but O-R-D is lowercase. That's two different words that David is using. The first word that he uses, all capitals, that is the name Yahweh. That is God's covenant name. That is his relational name. That is the name that speaks of him as a God who has drawn a people to himself. The second word of Lord is the word Adonai. And Adonai means master. It means Lord. And it expresses the truthfulness and biblical understanding of God's sovereignty over all things. And so here's what David is saying. O Lord, who has brought me into relationship with him. Our Lord, who sits enthroned as the sovereign master and ruler of all. How majestic is your name in all the earth. And David here begins to praise the Majesty of the Lord. He begins to ascribe to the name of the Lord, which is a way the Old Testament uses to refer the character of God. He begins to ascribe supreme greatness and authority, and he says, "You have set your glory above the heavens." See, David's saying that God's glory is just, is not just limited to the arena of what can be seen and recognized. His glory transcends the furthest points that the eye can see. It's as if David is saying, You are more glorious than the most glorious and mysterious things I am able to set my eyes upon. You have set your glory above the heavens. And David begins then to consider three specific ways that the majesty of the Lord is to be praised. And the first is... His protection and provision. And not just that God protects and provides, but the very way that He protects and provides. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. David is praising the majesty of the Lord for the Lord and his work of protection and provision and using the weak to lead the strong. And he uses the, the terms and the, the, the pictures of babies and infants to steal or to still enemy forces. And he praises God for his protection and his provision and the very means by which he protects and provides and, and this is the way the Lord has done this throughout the new test or the throughout the old testament and even into the new you have salvation in Genesis 3 being promised through the seed of the woman Genesis 3:15 the seed of the woman will crush the serpent you have an exodus as the Lord is, is giving instruction to the nation of Israel before he is going to lead them out of Egypt What does he tell them to do? Put lamb's blood above your door and the angel of the Lord will pass over. You just think about that for a minute. How how is lamb's blood going to do anything to still a plague? Well, they put faith and trust in the promises of God and they placed the lamb's blood above their door and were spared. Think about Gideon and his men. Judges chapter 7, Gideon took 300 men into battle against upwards of 100,000 and prevailed. See, God has this pattern in this history of using the weak to lead the strong, to use babies and infants to, to still the enemy and the avenger. David himself was one of them, a young shepherd boy going up against a giant takes a couple rocks, puts one in his sling, swings it around, knocks him out. You think you've even forwarded several thousand years to the cross and what it was that Christ accomplished and the very means that he accomplished. The cross was an instrument of death. For the one being crucified, the cross was an instrument and a picture of powerlessness. Once you're hung, you're not coming down. And you're hung there to suffocate in excruciating death and to be made a fool and to be mocked by all. And yet what did Christ do? He put to death death by the means of death. And what was intended in the world's eyes to finally quiet this radical and perhaps disband his group of followers had victorious consequences that had not ever been considered by the strong that had surrounded him as they hung him on a tree. David praises the majesty of the Lord for his protection and provision. Secondly, David praises the majesty of the Lord for his mindfulness and care of man. Look with me at verse 3. When I look at the heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him. David praises the majesty of the Lord for his mindfulness and care of man, and he does so on the backdrop of what he is able to observe in the universe that the Lord has created. And he cites specifically the moon and the stars. And David, as a shepherd boy, would have spent probably countless nights out in the fields, perhaps even as a king. We're not real sure when David wrote this. Perhaps even as a king on his roof, looking up into the night sky, looking at the moon, looking at the stars, and seeing the vastness of the universe that is observable from where he stands or where he might have been laying. And he finds himself just absolutely blown away. At the Lord's mindfulness of man. And not just that he was mindful or cognitively aware of man. But that he cares for man. Who is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. And what I want to show you this morning is some, some images from the observable universe. And we have the benefit of modern technology that gives us observation and pictures of the universe that that david just had no concept of you consider some of the things that telescopes over in baltimore observatory are capturing and what the hubble's putting back and what the james webb is going to give us in a couple years when that gets launched into space like there is an unbelievable amount of amazing things being revealed by technology right now in regards to the universe so we can marvel in ways that david had no ability to marvel because we can understand some things about the world that, and about the solar system we live in and about the universe and the galaxy that David just had no concept of. And so we're going to, by and large, stay fairly close to home. The last slide I've got for you, we're going we're to get really far away. But we're, by and large, going to stay close to home. So you'll understand who that is and recognize that. It's not the Death Star for any of you Star Wars fans. All right? That's our moon. Okay, that, That's what we see in the night sky it has been absolutely gorgeous the last few days they could actually call it a strawberry moon And apparently the the summer equinox and a full moon lining up together was like the first time in the last 50 years that that has happened. And it'll be another 50 or 60 before that happens again. And that was on June 20th. So uh, this past week we got to see that. Um, But but just consider some facts about the moon. It's not just this little cute ball that we get to look at and kind of see its size and shape visibly change over the course of a month. Uh, But the moon's relatively large. Large size, an unusual orbit, stabilize Earth. Earth sits at a 23 and a half degree axis. If the moon's size and proximity to Earth were different, its gravity would not be holding Earth's degree of axis tilt near constant. There's about a one to two degree of fluctuation that just happens. And so that would mean we don't have any seasons. Now some of you would be all for that if it meant no winter. But if it meant only winter, we would not enjoy that to be sure. But the moon is, is stabilizing earth because of how close it is and how its gravity functions and is used of earth. The size and the orbit of the moon are also ideal for producing tides on the earth which help cleanse the shores of the ocean and play a vital role in the life of sea creatures. Just imagine for a minute... What would happen if you went to a beach and nothing was ever washed away? It'd be pretty gross, actually. Like the birds that die and just kind of fall and the, it, it, nothing was ever washed away, we would never go swim there. But the moon is actually pulling on one side of the Earth's water. And it's creating a high tide by its gravitational pull. But equal and opposite of the moon's gravitational pull on this side of the world, Earth's own inertia is pulling against the moon's pull. So you have high tide on equal and opposite sides of the world. And then you have low tide on the other sides that kind of get squished and brought in. It's it's an elliptical pull. And the moon is the perfect size and orbit for that to be produced. The moon is 400 times smaller than the sun, but the sun is 400 times further away from the world than the moon. And what that does is that allows the sun and the moon to visibly look like they're the same size. It's what allows us to have solar and lunar eclipses where they pass in front of each other and they, they, they kind of shade and shadow One another at any given point in time because one is 400 times larger, but it's 400 times further away. You consider some of the precision that science has indicated exists in regards to just our moon, it's quite frankly stunning. It's not just this little cute ball that's up there for us, it's doing some profound and amazing things. For our ecosystem and our habitats and, and, and the world. Well, let's consider that world. This image taken in December 7th, 1972 by Apollo 17. It's, it's one of the most famous pictures of the world. You, you see Africa, that's what you're looking at, that body of mass. You've got the, the horn of Africa kind of being right around 10 o'clock And then when you get down to more of the center of the earth at about the 9 o'clock range, there you have um, a younger version of Barry and Warren there in South Africa. Um, And so there is that section of the world that we're looking at. This taken in 1972. The earth is the right distance from the sun. Now I grew up thinking, and I believe even being told, that if the earth was one inch closer, we would burn... And if it was one inch further away, we would we would freeze. And that that's not quite true because the Earth's elliptical orbit—it's not perfectly circular around the sun. So we actually get a little closer at different times during the year. That's part of the reason we have varying temperature degrees and, and changes in our in our world as well. Um, but what happens if you if you do go to Venus? You have you have a, a world that is too hot for life to exist, and in Mars you have a world that is too cold to exist, and really what you have on earth is the exact right place for life and and humanity to exist in that regard, and the earth's the right mass, and it has the right atmosphere, and the earth has the right composition of elements to sustain Life and, and science knows this. Science is, is telling us these things and these, these are some of the benefits that, that observational science can give us because they can test these things and they can repeat these tests and they can, they can draw correct conclusions. And, and the truthfulness of the earth being the right distance from the sun and the right mass to have an atmosphere and to actually hold ozone and air so that there's air to breathe and, and, and the, the necessary elements for water to exist and other elements that life needs to survive is everything that scientists are looking for when they are looking and surveying the known universe for other planets they believe could potentially sustain life. They're taking what they have observed as the perfections that are here on the earth of its right mass and right atmosphere and right elements and right size and right distance and they're trying to find that elsewhere. But that speaks to a precision for us. It speaks to and I think gives great reason for us to have confidence to conclude what David has concluded. When I look At the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. As David writes that, those words, have set, at the end of chapter, at the end of verse 3, they indicate an intensive action by God. David is describing God being intensively involved in the moon that he watches come up into the night sky. And the stars that he can look and observe. Well, regarding our star, the one that we are closest to, the sun is just quite frankly amazing. And on April 17th of this past year, there was an active region of the sun's right right side that released a mid-level solar flare. Now, you and I can't look at the sun without burning our eyes, but scientists have developed technological instruments that allows them to observe the sun in in many different wavelengths or through many different filters through their telescopes. And what one of the filters is that they use is called the extreme ultraviolet light filter. And there's several different wavelengths that extreme ultraviolet light comes away from the sun that can be perceived and picked up by these instruments we have here on earth. And what they're able to do is they're able to assign in, in a computer a specific color to a certain wavelength of light. And so they're able to actually then produce different color-coded um, videos or images that allow us to see these solar flares, which we would not have been able to see by any other means. These solar flares, as they come through, are, are full of radiation and are actually blocked by our ozone layer to being, from being harmful for us. But they generally cause disturbances in GPS communication and radios and cell phones so if you wondered why that call dropped on April 17th it may have been this mid-level solar flare but I want to show it to you and NASA put out this video and they took these many images of this extreme ultraviolet light and they assigned a specific color to one wavelength that they captured And then they comprised this video that allows us to see what had happened on the sun. And and I think not just the solar flare is breathtaking, but the other aspects of the sun that you get to observe are just, quite frankly, breathtaking to watch. And so the video is about a minute, and it's, it's just stunning. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers... The moon and the stars that you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? David praises the majesty of the Lord for his mindfulness and care of man. The image on the screen right now is called the Hubble Deep Field. And what happened in 2014, this image was released by NASA and the scientists that deal directly with the Hubble telescope. And what led to this image was in 2003, there was a group of scientists that decided to take a huge risk. It was a monetary risk, it was a time risk, it was a risk of great significance. But what they did, and I, as, they, as they looked into the sky, they saw an area of the night sky that looked completely black. Every instrument that they had been able to point at this night sky yielded just blackness. And so they took a risk and they said, you know what, let's, let's tell the Hubble as it orbits around the earth to point its camera there and to see what it finds. And so beginning in 2003, the Hubble began its first of 841 different image-taking sessions of this blackness, this square that looked completely devoid of everything. And for the better part of six, seven years, Hubble read or gave them images that were in infrared light and other aspects and light sources. And in 2010, they said, all right, let's turn the ultraviolet filters on. Let's tell Hubble to look at this section of the night sky and look for the extreme ultraviolet light wavelengths. And Hubble kept orbiting. In about a part of three years, hundreds of orbits took place. And they began stitching together this composite picture, wound and and put together, made up of, of hundreds if not thousands of images that Hubble took and sent back to the scientists that were engaging it. And what they found in this section of the night sky that with every other instrument yielded nothing but blackness and apparent emptiness was the image you see before you. And it is estimated there are 10,000 galaxies on that screen. Those are not stars, those are galaxies. Galaxies with millions of stars in them. Galaxies of different shapes and sizes. See, we start looking at this stuff, and I I had so much fun preparing for this one. I watched a space movie on Thursday night to just kind of keep the mood going. When I look at the heavens... The work of your fingers. Just think of how David is just describing that. Yes, it's poetry, but he's, he's saying something about God. He's saying something about what God is capable of. The work of your fingers. This isn't all that God had. It's not all that he has to give. He wasn't exhausted after he made these He didn't need to go take a nap after he spoke these 10,000 galaxies into being and the untold thousands of other galaxies that exist that we haven't found them. David just says, look, they're the work of your fingers. And like we sing the song as little kids, if you grew up in church, he's got the whole world in his hands. And there's an element of truth to that, but that's nowhere near a complete picture. And David is ascribing and praising the majesty of the Lord for how transcendently he sits above and beyond everything that is able to be seen. And you and I, some thousands years later, get to see things that he had no idea ever existed. And he says, who is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you would care for him. Think of a God that's able to speak 10,000 galaxies into being. It should rightly lead us to feel small. And to wonder about this God who would not just be aware of us, but care for us. Thirdly, David praises the majesty of the Lord for his work in and through Man And he says in verse five, yet in contrast to David wondering about the Lord and his mindfulness and his care, he says the Lord is not just mindful. He doesn't just care. He's actually allowed man to now engage in what he has created. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen and the beasts of the fields the birds of the heaven the fish of the sea whatever passes along the paths of the sea david continues in his praise of the lord's majesty and says i can't believe you let me have a part in this and in many ways he echoes genesis 1:28 where it's recorded that god blessed them and said to them be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So I think David had Genesis 1 and 2 fully in mind as he wrote Psalm 8, as he's looking at the observable universe and just marveling at the Lord. And I, I think one of the, the really neat parts of heaven, and this is pure speculation. So let me just say this right on the bat. This is pure speculation. But I think one of the really cool things of heaven might be that we get a a, a glimpse at how comets and meteorites and shooting stars and black hole explosions and supernovas and all of those things that are, that are reported and, and, and we have images of those, that we get a glimpse of how all of those actually declared the glory of the Lord and how the Lord used all of those. What we have as seemingly insignificant events of, oh, just a meteor shower, that we get a glimpse how the Lord used that and was orchestrating that as his fingers continued to work as he sits sovereignly and transcendently above the world that he created. And David marvels at the Lord's work in and through man, that he would allow man to have responsibility over this world that he has made. Now the New Testament picks up on these verses. And the New Testament actually quotes Psalm 8 in several different occasions. In the book of Hebrews and 1 Corinthians and the book of Ephesians, those writers see verse 6 of Psalm 8 to be ultimately fulfilled by the person of Jesus Christ. That while David marvels at the Lord's giving of responsibility to Him, of dominion, of, of, of working, of, of, of things being placed under His feet. The writers of the New Testament see this most fully and completely fulfilled in the person of Christ, where it is said that He is sitting sovereignly and in dominion over all things. And all things have been placed under His feet. David praises the majesty of the Lord for his work in and through man. A point that the New Testament picks up on and says, and this is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Everything the Lord has made is intended to glorify him as the sovereign creator. And you see David's praise Of the majesty of the Lord for his protection and his provision, and not just that he protects and provides, but the very means by which he protects and provides. David praises the majesty of the Lord for his mindfulness and care of man, and in comparison to everything observable in the universe. And he praises the majesty of the Lord. For his work in and through man. This psalm is just overflowing with praise for who God is. And his, his glory that transcends and sits above the heavens. And, and, and his, his glory that is more glorious than everything that is able to be seen. Whether by our eyes as David would have had available or even by all of the latest technological advancements that science can give us. And so I think one of the really cool ways that we can continue thinking about Psalm 8 and and perhaps put this psalm into practice a little bit, because there's no command in this psalm. And so I think one one of the cool takeaways that we could walk out of here with is for us this week to write down 50 different things to praise the Lord for in regards to his work. And it may be tonight that you look at the moon and you, you consider the tides and you consider what, what is going on and the fact that we have a summer season. It, sure, you can, you can beg, borrow, and steal from David. That's all right, but that gets you one. You've got 49 more to go. Maybe it's the sun and, and, and the warmth that it provides, and, and perhaps you wonder at the same time, why am I so pale and need so much sunscreen? I mean, that's my life. It's just sunscreen. You're praising the Lord for His work. But what if that praise also extends to the fact that He created gravity, and that's what's keeping the four tires of your car on the road as you drive home? And the very very laws that the Lord has created that has allowed physics to develop all of what we need for even combustible engines to power those vehicles are actually traceable back to the work of His fingers. See, there's so many things in our world, and I think things that perhaps we haven't always stopped and considered that are the direct result of what it is the Lord has created. And so I challenge you this week, 50 things. It's seven a day with the remainder of one. And then I challenge you to post that online if you have a Facebook account. Post it on your wall and then share it to the church page. Or we'll try to share it to the church page as well. But just think for a minute what, what, it, what it would be, the the... The exclamation of praise we would fill social media with this coming week if all of us were just posting things that we are just praising the Lord for and the majesty that He has and the glory that sits above everything that's observable that we want to give and ascribe the glory to His name for. That's exactly what David does. And he concludes exactly where he began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. O Lord, my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art. How great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee. How great Thou art.